0: Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Thank you for joining me today as we continue to swim with the swans. We have made it to the D block of episode one, the last 10 minutes of the very first episode of Feud, Capote versus the Swans. With a little bit of a backup here in Alicia's version, what would I want you to know watching these scenes? There's a lot of background info in this one, but before we begin today's episode, holy cats, I have so many of you to thank. First up, a big welcome to lots and lots of new listeners out there. I am so thrilled that you have joined our investigation here on Done and Done. Next up, I have a few devoted investigators to thank. Thank you, y'all, for the Reddit subthread community that shouted out, Done and done on a feud Dominic Dunn subreddit thread. One of my squad, my friend LG, alerted me to your awesomeness and y'all simply made my week with the mentions and the love. LG is on the case, sending me your suggestions and sweet comments. What a kick. Hats off to y'all. You're the tops and the cats pajamas too. It was really nice to see such kind things about Done and Done out in the world. And oh my, last up, but never least, so many new folks who have joined our Patreon community. Who gets a big shout out this week for joining us over there? Heather C, Rob T, LR, Jen B, Nico, Lisa H, Melissa W, Kimberly B, Melissa C, and Lynn G. Y'all are simply incredible. Thank you for your support of this creative endeavor, both new and sustaining patrons you are the magic. If you too would like to get in on ad-free and early episodes, weekly not done yet, and other bonuses, patreon.com slash done and done is the place to go to find out more. We are here today in the lake, moving through to the very end of episode one. In the D-Block, Truman Capote has gone and done it. He's released Lacote Basque 1965 in Esquire. So many stories, so many reactions, and so many spiderwebs. Let's investigate. friends, we are almost finally making it to block D. We have 10 minutes left in the investigation of episode one and so much content to get in. In my real-time recording of this, I am caught up now in the series to the middle of episode three in Feud. I'm hoping this is going to let me perhaps be able to better cultivate what bits and bobs I put in for you with Alicia's version. In this one, we are going to get into October 1975, and that article in Esquire Publishing, its release changes everything. But before we deep dive, want to back up just a teeny tiny bit and give a huge shout out to my girl, Amy Kay, for this musical Easter Egg Connection that happened at the end of episode one, Block C. In Block C, where we last left off, right? Truman Capote was writing and getting his groove back. What is playing that operatic music in the background is an aria from the Magic Flute by Mozart. Because it was more important for me to record this for you than spend 19 hours trying to figure out how this particular aria was pronounced in German because apparently in different dialects it can go a lot of ways. The thing that I need you to know about this particular scene, Amy K., it was so cool you mentioned this, this particular aria is sung by the Queen of the Night and the German aria title roughly translates to, The Vengeance of Hell Boils in My Heart, Death and Despair flame about me. I think you get the real point. Holy cats. Thank you, Amy Kay, for that musical connection. That makes that scene so much more exciting. Next up, I want to talk about what's happening actually before the publication of Lacote Basque 1965 when it hits Esquire in October 1975. Block D in episode one opens with the Esquire magazine, and Bill Paley. How bad is it? Before we get there, I want to set the scene up for you in just a little bit more detail. We have only seen some selected swans up into this point in episode one. We know Babe. We know Slim. We know CZ. But Truman Capote has always had swans. Lots of swans. Not just in his childhood, not just in his teenage years or 20 something years. He has a whole pack of swans that float with Babe and Slim and CZ. We have talked about these ladies back within Capote's coterie. I want to go ahead and make mention here of one of Truman's other swans, Morella Onieli. Morella had the good sense to drop out with Truman. Before all of this bit happens, let's go ahead and hear what Morella Agnelli has to say. This is from Plimpton's Truman Capote in which various friends, enemies, acquaintances, and detractors recall his turbulent career. Morella Agnelli talks about her breakup with Truman. My breakup with him came before the answered prayers pieces appeared in Esquire. He told me one or two things to hurt me. I never understood why. There was something so vicious, so nasty, that I got frightened of Truman. My husband, Gianni, was very much amused by Truman, very much. He thought he was the best company. So did Bill Paley. Lionel Guinness thought he was the best company. But Truman didn't really like them, you could tell. He would say so. He would tell you about their little defaults, their... Fabless, Trying to woo you away from them in a funny way. I know he was doing the same thing with Babe Paley. And then, finally, he went too far. With Babe, he went much too far. Why is Morella so key to Truman? I do hope we see her in this series. Truman, every time he goes internationally, he's pretty much on the Agnelli's yacht. He is staying with them Largely based to their largesse and kindness. And this is all the same high society set he travels in. Morella Agnelli has one more thing to say again from Plimpton. Morella says about Truman and the pre-publication of this piece. He gave me a little bit of it on the boat. That boat is a yacht, y'all. Okay, he gave me a little bit of it on the boat. I don't read in English, only very slowly, so it was better when I would hear him reading. On the boat, we had lots of time, and he read me some bits and pieces. What he was writing was very shallow. It was like gossip columns. And I remember him getting quite cross one day. I had said, oh, Truman, this is a gossip column. What are you going into? Truman is talking to folks about what he's writing. He, like a lot of other tortured writers, will work out their frustrations and ideas with others. I've got another comment here again from Plimpton's Truman Capote. This is from Louise Grunwald talking about this particular time. Louise Grunwald says about Truman, he was a pot stirrer. He had this great quality of getting things out of people. He was a good listener, and he was sympathetic and cozy. Also, these women had a need to talk. Why Truman? Because he wasn't threatening. If they told another woman, it would have been losing face. They felt that Truman was unshockable. So there wasn't that to worry about. He had all the time in the world to listen and sympathize, so they told him things they should have been telling their shrinks only. He was so cozy, such a good friend that it was hard to think of him first as a novelist, then as a friend, which was probably stupid of everybody. I want to bring back into this picture with another quote my very favorite swan. Carol Marcus Sororian Mathau. She is quoted in George Plimpton's Truman Capote talking about Truman writing before the release of Le Cote Basque 1965. Carol Marcus Mathau says, once he said to me, honey, I want to read you what I've written about you. He began, Carol has gardenia skin, I said, I don't even want to talk about it. It's fine. I don't care what you say about me. Writers write. Anyone who doesn't know that is silly. You can't take that away from them. It's like women who take alimony. I don't believe in that either. There are very few things that are beneath me, but those are too. Carol goes on, and I do think this is really rather interesting, The Cote Basque story didn't destroy him. In fact, it could have been the beginning of his life as one of the greatest writers ever. For him to be the court jester to the people of the moment, or those who are rich or have enough heritage or background so they don't need to be rich, well, that's a joke. He knew better than that. A writer is another person behind a typewriter. Babe Paley's not babe when Truman's behind the typewriter. He would have written the pieces even if he'd known what the repercussions would be. He had more balls than anyone. I don't know. We'll see if Carol Marcus's thought bears out. Because it is definitely one thing to write it. Writers write. But it is another thing to publish it. Truman Capote's motivations more than likely, probably most assuredly, go way, way deeper. But on the surface level here, we are going to hearken back for just another few moments to actually getting this piece published in Esquire. See, Truman Capote, before this piece's publication, is spending his time down in Key West with so many connections that we have talked about in previous episodes Circle back to episode 111 with Truman Capote and Key West. I want to fill in again a few bits about how the actual publication of this article happens. A lot of it is sheer vanity on the behalf of Truman Capote. Also, it is sort of interesting how the universe conspires because the universe did not want this piece to come to light. Truman Capote is not going to take no for an answer. Taking this next bit, again, from George Plimpton, I cannot recommend this book enough. It's really, really wonderful. This is from George Page, talking about Truman at this time in Key West. He was staying at that motel in Key West in a trailer out back, parked close to the water's edge. This is the very beginning of the hotel development by David Wolakowski down in Key West, David had the trailer, and Truman kicked him out of it for the summer. Kind of a fun story there. Continuing from George Page, Truman was in the trailer out back, parked close to the water's edge. He told me Don Erickson of Esquire was coming down to bring the galleys, or the proofs, or the dummies, whatever they were, and he wanted me to read them. Oh, God, let this cup pass, I said. I don't want that responsibility. What do you care anyway? I mean, you wrote the stuff. He said, I don't know. I might want to change it. So anyway, Erickson came. He was just gleeful. He was going to publish these excerpts from Answered Prayers because he knew how explosive they were. I remember saying to Truman, I think they're fascinating, but do you really want to do this? Well, I'm not using real names. I said, Truman, it's so totally transparent. I remember saying, are you really prepared for the consequences of what you're saying about the Paley's and these other figures of New York society that you have skewered in that piece? I don't remember his exact words, but Truman, in effect, said he wasn't worried about it. He thought his friendships with them were stronger than that and that they would see it as the work of art that it was. I remember that evening he was very drunk. He was having a fight with O'Shea. It dawned on me that his publishing those excerpts was a very self-destructive act, and that I think he knew it. When he was sober, he took sort of an impish glee in what was about to happen. I really believe that he knew he had thrown a bombshell that was going to change his life. And it did. You know, it knocked him, for the most part, right off his extraordinary social pedestal. I don't think he wanted that to happen, but there was something about Truman that made him want to shock. My theory is that he must have been thinking he couldn't write anymore that he would never be able to write as well as he did earlier. He never wanted to repeat himself. He would not have done another nonfiction novel. I wonder if he wasn't saying to himself, I have to do something dramatic or the world is going to get tired of me. I want to go ahead and pull out a quote here from Dotson Raider. Dotson Raider back in 111 is the guy who perhaps saved Dominic Dunn's life one night. Back in a terrible, terrible night in the mid-70s, Dotson Raider is with Truman Capote at this time before the publication of La Cote Basque. He has a few things to say as well. From Dotson Raider, Truman's having a bullshot. He's on the phone from L.A. to Esquire in New York, talking to Don Erickson, who was the editor. They're negotiating the sale of the stories from Answered Prayers. He hangs up and he tells me what Esquire's offered, $16,000. Earlier, the New Yorker had offered him $18,000. He wanted to know which offer to take. I asked, well, what audience do you want to reach? Truman at that point was very worried about the aging of his audience. And he wanted to be in a magazine that had a younger readership. I said, do you know demographically the occupation of the greatest number of New Yorker subscribers? He said no. And I said, well, if you break their audience down by occupation, the leading subscribers are dentists. (laughs) That's your audience. People with toothaches waiting for the drill. So he called Esquire back. He made certain demands. Cover approval. There couldn't be any changes in the text. The third thing was that the editor of Esquire had to fly to Key West to pick up the manuscript, which made no sense to me at all. He was going to the Yucatan where he was going to see Lee Radswell. From there, he was going up to Key West. I remember this limousine picked us up to take us to the airport. Truman had the manuscript of answered prayers, about 800 pages, wrapped in brown paper and tied with a string, he had it on the seat of the limousine next to us. He also had a packet of about an inch of yellow legal pads in his tiny little handwriting. That was in his luggage, but the manuscript itself he had on the seat of the car. We got to the L.A. airport. The car left, and we went to the Aeromexico desk to get Truman's ticket. Suddenly, he realized he didn't have the manuscript, He was absolutely horrified. I mean, Truman went into total panic. Oh, my God, my God, did I leave it at the hotel? My God, my God, I can't believe it. Twelve years of my life. My God, I can't. I'll never be able to duplicate where. So I said, let me call the hotel. I got through to the hotel housekeeping. There was nothing in the room. He then said to me that he'd probably left it in the limousine. So I called the limousine company and they radioed the car and indeed the manuscript was in the car and they brought it back to the airport. Truman grabbed it and held it to his breast. He never let go of that thing until he got on the plane. I've got one more pre-publication bit and this one is from John O'Shea's daughter, Kate Harrington. Last week, are not done yet, over on Patreon was all about Kate Harrington's stories. I've heard from a few of you from Patreon that Kate Harrington will be popping back up in future episodes, so I'm glad we got that out of the way. John O'Shea's daughter Kate will have this to say about the pre-publication time of Lacote Basque. I remember when he decided to put the excerpt from Answered Prayers in Esquire. I was talking on the telephone to my dad, and I remember him saying, that's social suicide. That was the end for Truman, let's face it. He showed me the little excerpts, the little stories that he was going to lace together. Some of them were really little, and he didn't even print them. I read it as a story, and I thought it was very intriguing, though I didn't recognize the thinly veiled identities. Now, Dominic Dunn's doing it all the time, but those people felt betrayed. Of course, Truman had a side to him that was really wicked, naughty. I don't know what that stems from, if he actually resented the people he was so close to, or that some part of him thought it would be the epitome of what he wanted at that level of society. But when he got up there, perhaps it wasn't as satisfying as he thought, Or perhaps he was unhappy inside anyway. It was sort of a desperate move. The book wasn't done and he wanted to give them a taste to keep people interested. I remember him being very excited by the prospect of it actually coming out. Making funny jokes with that big hearty laugh saying, Ah, wait till you see when this hits the stands. People are going to be. He thought it was going to be a sensation. It certainly was a sensation, just not quite the way I think Truman thought it was going to go. One more bit before we take it to a break. This one is from Gerald Clark. Gerald Clark is Truman Capote's biographer. If you want the most excellent biography of Truman Capote, it is Gerald Clark's. Gerald Clark in his OVRA as well has also assembled the complete letters of Truman Capote, another really fantastic resource. Again, all sources are listed over at doneanddone.com. One last little bit from Gerald Clark here about pre-publication. One day, Truman appeared and took me swimming at Gloria Vanderbilt's. He spent his summers in his friend's pools. Gloria Vanderbilt and her husband, Wyatt Cooper, were in Europe so we had her pool to ourselves. They kept it heated to something like 90 degrees for the entire time they were gone, this during an energy crisis. I sat in a lounge reading the Coat Basque excerpt from Answered Prayers while Truman was in the water floating on an air mattress. I recognized the real people behind most of the characters, but not all. When I finished And he explained who everybody was. I told him that people weren't going to be happy with this. He said, nah, they're too dumb. They won't know who they are. Oh, famous last words from Gloria Vanderbilt's pool. That is making it to pre-publication. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we are going to open with Block D and the magazine coming out. With that slick, slick cover. Back in just one moment, friends. Finally, the end of episode one. We are here at Block D and the magazine is out. And we open with Bill Paley. Seeing that infamous magazine cover. Him asking, how bad is it? To no one will know it was us. Oh, Bill Paley, you are a fool. Bill has been married to Babe about 28 years now. And Babe, as we know, made her trade-off a long time ago. Here we are in 1975, and Truman Capote is dredging up what was hot gossip back in the mid-50s. Again, my contention, 20 years later, all of these stories come out, and oh, it's terrible. Babe is mad. Babe is big mad. Bill Still, saying no one will know it was us. Not true. Everyone knows who everyone is. Let's talk about a little bit of this reaction. Again, from George Plimpton's compiled work. This first quote is from John Richardson about the publication of LeCote Basque 65. John Richardson says, It was offensive. Cafe society gossip of the trashiest kind, but it was rather brilliantly done. Shit served up on a gold dish. Extremely disconcerting, I felt. He'd obviously gone through a lot of pain to make it crisp, sharp, and pointed, but I couldn't understand why he was wasting his time writing blind items about his best friends. Kurt Vonnegut chimes in with this particular bit. It's fun, he says, but it is amazing that he would claw these people the way he did. We got one more from Diana Trilling. That was very nasty, wasn't it? It wasn't a nice thing to do. But in a different sense, the ones he skewered had used him as kind of an entertainer, a court jester. He had used them as a kind of social prop. It was pretty even, don't you think? Let's hear from another fellow writer, Mr. Norman Mailer. Terrible husband, Norman Mailer, FYI. I don't know if y'all have gone back to hear the, his particular trashy divorces over on my sister podcast, but that guy. I try not to do too much Norman Mailer just because of how he treated his wives, but this particular quote is quite astounding. Norman Mailer says about Lacote Basque 65 and Truman, I would have never thought that he'd be so incautious. Not even bold, but rash. I'd seen him being bold. He'd been bold all his life, but not rash. I thought the Paley piece was bad, finally. I mean, who gives a damn? For Truman, that would be the true nightmare. To go to bed with a woman and she's bleeding all over the place? But for the average heterosexual, that's not that big a deal. It's happened, it'll happen again. It's not agreeable, but you don't hit bottom. The fact that it was Bill Paley involved was what was wrong with it. It was an in-house joke. You have to know it's Bill Paley on his knees, scrubbing out the sheet in his bathtub in this hotel, and if you don't, it's much smaller. Gene Maliquay once said to me, don't ever put anything in a book because it's lively now. Always think, will this be alive 50 years from now when people don't know who you're talking about? The Cote-Basque story depends on knowing who all the players are. It was not hidden. Truman did not go to any great lengths to hide who he was talking about. Let's go ahead and dip back into the action of the television series. This scene really is incredible. Babe is talking to her husband, Bill, and she is asking, which betrayal is worse, yours or Truman's? Babe says, I loved him and I let him in, Truman, because I had nobody. She is humiliated. Her heart is broken. And the thing that Babe sees here in this scene that makes her heart break more is that Truman's portrait of us, she says, is all true. He got it right. Most of all, me. How seriously I take this life I have. I'm dying for perfection. Then she goes back to Bill. What did I do to deserve your contempt? You squandered me. You bought me up like one of your television stations and cast me off. I'm an asset to you. No different. But Babe understands this presented in the series. I mean, this is harsh stuff. Truman has disemboweled us, but he's right. This homosexual court jester singing for his supper want to bring in another reaction here. Again, we are only on a very high level working through some of the reasons Truman might do this. We're going to get way deep into it in the next episode, but again, high level. This particular quote is from John Barry Ryan and he unpacks at least from his point of view a little bit more on a high level why Truman would write such a piece. How could Truman turn on these people who befriended him. That is sheer unadulterated bullshit. The people who had Truman around, when they were not 100% manipulated by Truman into having him around, had him because he was entertaining, great company, loved the life that they lived, and brought fresh zest to it that they had long since lost by virtue of overindulgence or the fact that they were so accustomed to it That they just didn't see why it was fun anymore. They didn't befriend him. They didn't need him. That people who entertained Truman, who shared their innermost secrets with him, who used him as their therapist, their court jester, that those people should have been surprised that Truman's indiscretion might extend to publicly revealing their indiscretions? as opposed to privately, as though that made a difference in the world, I have always found astonishing. The people who, after befriending Truman, accepting this asp onto their bosoms, were surprised that the snake bit. Snakes bite. Truman certainly signed no Official Secrets Act. Everybody who was exposed to him in the period I'm familiar with knew that if you told Truman something, it was the equivalent of telling 40 other people. You would no more ask Truman to treat something as if for his ears only than you would to throw bread upon the water and expect it to come back. That's what made him so enjoyable. That's when you had Truman to dinner, he would tell the most outrageous stories about everybody else. You knew that the people he told stories about Would have him to dinner the following night, and then he would tell outrageous stories about you. The level of his indiscretion in many ways depended on the level of your indiscretion. He repeated incidents, he created gossip for his own amusement. Then he took that material which originally had been created for his own amusement and said, I now choose to make this material available to a broader public. In exchange for these entertaining stories, I expect to be flown in for dinner. A masterful gossip. Probably the preeminent purveyor of gossip as entertainment of our time. Certainly if a Susie or any other gossip columnist had chosen to be as indiscreet as Truman, they would not have a newspaper column for long. Somebody would have them shot or fired somebody would have bought the newspaper and shut it down. I think it's so fascinating that contemporaries of Truman about this time, just in these limited pages we're looking at, have used the term court jester many, many times. I think we've heard it almost half a dozen times now. I think now is another great time to fit in a quick break. When we come back, we are going to get to that lunch with Slim Keith making her plans for vengeance, and Babe Paley humiliated back at Lakote Basque. See you on the flip. Oh, this scene is so heartbreaking. Babe comes in, humiliated, eyes red. They all know. The phone calls, the post. Slim Keith, in the television series, certainly reveals here that Anne Woodward is dead and knew the piece was coming out today. She had an advanced copy and died by suicide because of Truman Capote by cyanide. And Slim Keith here, boil, boil, toil, and trouble, in this particular telling, Slim is like, oh, we have to avenge Anne Woodward. That is not a thing. Nobody's avenging Anne Woodward. There is not a motivation to avenge Anne Woodward for these gals, at least on a primary level. We're going to get down into it. What is it? It's Wounded Pride, y'all. It is the very accurate way that Trim and Capote described the whole set. And now they're closing ranks. Let's go ahead and give a moment to Slim Keith and her real life perceptions about how this actually rolls down. Slim Keith recalls, Barbara Paley called me up on the phone and said, "'Have you seen Esquire?' I said, "'No,' and she said, "'Well, go get it.'" I was living in the Pierre Hotel. I sent the maid down. "'Bring me back this magazine.'" I read it, and I was absolutely horrified, because there I was. My character is simply the person he's lunching with. All of the stuff, the story about the sheets, the story about Anne Woodward, was told by me, A person called Lady Coolberth. There was no question in anybody's mind who it was. He described how I look and how I speak. It was like looking in a mirror. Very odd experience. Babe had said, call me as soon as you're finished. So I called her and she said, well, well, I said, I feel absolutely (sighs) as though I've been hit. All the breath is out of me so who do you think it is? I said, who do I think who is? Well, that story of Truman's. I don't know. Have you any idea? No idea in the world who it is. It could be anybody. She was sick with her cancer then. It was the last thing I was ever going to tell her. Female friendship, right? They really are a crew. One more quote here from Slim Keith about her fallout with Truman. Slim Keith says, I felt really bereft. I grieved, having lost a very nice good part of my life. I enjoyed him, and I knew an element that had given me pleasure was gone. I knew I would never take it back under any circumstances. What I didn't understand to this day is what sort of thinking brings a person to that point. And to do something like that, it can't be because he wants to sell books. None of those things that Truman had written had I ever said or ever thought. It was unjust and dreadful to put those words in my mouth. I'll never forgive him, never. I never spoke to him after that. He called often, and I would not take the call. He'd have John O'Shea call, who said, Truman's upset that you're very upset. And I said, well, he's right, I am. He understands correctly. So John would say, well, don't you think it was well written? I could hear Truman breathing on another extension. No, I said, I didn't think it was well written. It's too easy. I just thought it was terrible. Well, he thought it would make you laugh a lot because it really isn't you at all. You don't think that person is you, do you? Oh, John, come on, I said. I've got two big blue eyes. I can read. He said, no, it's Pamela Harriman. Pam does not bring to mind the picture of a cowgirl. Besides, she doesn't deserve that piece either. I never want to see, speak to, or hear from Truman again. I've lost my friend, and I'm sorry. And that was that. That's Slim Keith. There's no mention of Anne Woodward. I mean, it is a sad fate that Anne Woodward had, but the group of swans here is not flocking together to avenge Anne Woodward. They are avenging, on one level, their own pride, and on another level, circling ranks around their men. Slim in the television series talks about no more being deceived by men, no more being deceived by Truman or being deceived by the husbands. I do have one particular passage here from Judy Green, which I really think drills in this particular sentiment. Judy Green says, It's much more virulent and much more of an attack on the men than it is on the women. Any attack on the women, the women who took it so personally, was all because of the men. He really loathed the men and adored the women. Yet women were the ones who retaliated and thought it so horrible. But I think in his warped way, he was trying to say, I understand how awful it's been for you. I'm your only friend. I'm your savior. The world thinks Avril Harriman was this, or Bill Paley was that, immortalized by their big businesses and their great deeds, but I'll show them, you will be the true heroines. That's basically what he wanted to convey, almost an offering, an obeisance to them, something that people could read and say, oh God, these fantastic women and these despotic men. Of course, the men he decried were all macho, the complete opposite of Truman. Slim here is rallying the crew, all the swans, closing ranks in and around her colony. Keep in mind, it is a very rarefied lake that high society swims in, and the white swans are kicking the black swan out. Slim says it here, and it's no lie. Truman's no longer welcome, and we're going to make him suffer. <laughs> we do have a flashback here, again, maybe Chekhov's gun, of Truman at that lake scene that this particular episode opened with. The scene flashes back to Lakote Basque with Slim saying, he killed Anne, and we're going to kill him. He will have nothing, no one, no door, no oxygen And he will die just like Ann Woodward, but much, much slower. Diabolical here if you watch this Slim Keith. Slim Keith, we just heard what she had to say. She was out. She was done. Babe was already suffering from cancer, and they are closing ranks around their men. It is all about revenge. These ladies do close ranks, and Truman did not have a person, a door, oxygen. For a very long time afterward. Again, we flash back to Truman Capote at the lake. This is, again, from the beginning of that scene, 1984. So, very flashbacky, back forward time is all a continuum here. And that essentially is the wrap of episode one, The Pilot. That's the 10 minutes of television content and the other bits that. I've got so far, but y'all know me, I wouldn't be investigating this if I didn't have just a few more things happening within high society in and around this point. I want to connect a few different quotes here to string us out of the pilot. This is from Lee Eisenberg, an editor, talking about post-release of this piece. Lee Eisenberg says, I don't know that he, Truman, fully anticipated how inflammatory it would be. Truman was a very shrewd person, but he was also very innocent. I'm not certain he foresaw the controversy, the losing of friends, the animosity, and the scandal that Lakote Basque would bring. If he was concerned with any of that, he didn't share it with us at Esquire. We were frankly not prepared for it. It really wasn't until Liz Smith wrote the piece that we fully appreciated what we had. We just thought we had a most engaging novel in progress. We were not at all aware that it was going to be what it was. From that Lee Eisenberg quote, I want to hop over to Liz Smith, friend of Dominic Dunn's and columnist. She will write a piece about the reaction of La Cote Basque 1965. Liz Smith says, Truman's Cote Basque was all anybody was talking about. So Clay Felker, the editor of New York, asked me if I would write about the furor surrounding it. Truman was thrilled I was going to do it. I went to Hollywood to interview him. I'll never forget how distraught he was because the pressure was building. In the Padrino bar at the Beverly Wilshire, he said, I'm going to call Mrs. Vreeland, and you'll see that she's really on my side. He caused a big ruckus, and they brought a phone. He called her. He said, I'm sitting here with Liz Smith, and she tells me everyone is against me, but I know you're not. He went on and on, holding the phone out for me to hear. She was just saying these things, like she always said, that meant everything and nothing such as your description of the vegetables of the rich, ravishing. But I'll never forget how worried I was about Truman because it seemed as if he was going to go all to pieces. What was Truman's reaction in real life? Like, how did he think this was going to go? We've heard so far a lot of different background people in and out of Truman's life what are the people who were interacting with Truman at the time? What did they have to say about it? This particular quote is from John Knowles. Truman had ridden out there on a very long motor trip with Johnny O'Shea, up through Canada and down the West Coast, a 10,000-mile odyssey by car. He was completely out of touch with the social world and how it reacted to those pieces in Esquire, particularly Lakota Basque. I could tell he was very upset and shocked. I commented, you didn't expect anything of the sort, did you? He said briefly, no, he hadn't foreseen this at all. One more last bit. This is from Maria Teresa Kane. She says about Truman's reaction. I don't think he ever suspected that would be the reaction. I think he really felt they would say, Oh, Truman, you've been a naughty, naughty boy. I think he was very surprised at the reaction. He sent me a copy of Esquire magazine before it hit the stands. I remember reading it. I remember exactly where I was. I was in the garden. It was a very warm day, but I was all bundled up because I was recovering from a kidney infection. I read it and I just got colder and colder. I thought, oh, Truman, what have you done? He asked me to call him the minute I finished reading it, and I couldn't do it. I had to wait three or four days to call. In fact, he called me because he was so anxious to know what I thought. He didn't understand that their devastation would be to the degree that it was. People are generally much more hurt by what they read than what they hear just joshing with you. I got one more quote before we close it down today. This one's from William Styron. I think this probably sums up this whole episode rather nicely. William Styron says, the pieces couldn't have bothered me less, especially the people they were written about, largely because it's hard to have a great deal of respect for cafe society trash. But when I got a glimmer." That they were about real people, I said to myself, I wonder how on earth he expects to get by with this. These people were going to learn that they'd been written about, and they were certainly going to react negatively. It was disastrous, and to me, inexplicable. Writers don't have to destroy their friendships with people in order to write. It seemed to me an act of willful destruction. If those real people are our friends and we write about them in such a way to expose them, as Truman did, as bizarre and misbehaving and creepy and loony, then we can only expect to get some sort of retaliation. That, my friends, he certainly did. What a beginning to feud Capote versus the Swans. Investigators, that takes us through. Episode one, Alicia's version. I did not anticipate that to go for episodes, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. We are coming back on our next Dunday with episode two here on the main feed. In the meantime, over on Patreon, be on the lookout for a new journey with Joan Didion. We're going to be dropping that right after this episode for your weekly bonus Always something fun going on over there with a few more surprises on Patreon coming your way this week. Thank you one and all, all you beautiful, wonderful sleuths out there. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you tuning in, telling your friends, your Reddit feeds, your kind emails and your reviews too. Y'all are simply the best. We will be back on Monday for our next Dunday episode 2. In that one, we're digging into four main players. Lee Radzwell, Joanne Carson, John O'Shea, and Lily May, Truman's mama. Oh, it's going to be so much fun until we meet again. You know that I want you to stay curious and keep on investigating. Big love, y'all. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Done & Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.